America has 2.2 million people in prison. If just 1% is wrong, that's 22,000 people. That's a lot of people's lives destroyed. If the system want to take you out of society, they will do it. No matter what laws they have to break, saying that they are enforcing the laws, but they're breaking the law. Having to hear those people say that I was guilty of a crime that I did not commit, and then hear my family break down behind me and not be able to do anything about it, I can't describe the crushing weight that was. I'm not anti-police, I'm just anti-corruption. A lot of times we look and we see something happen to somebody, and that's the first thing we say. That could never happen to me, but it can. This is Wrongful Conviction. and this is 20 Questions on Deadline. Joining me today is Alison Bree. Welcome, Alison. We got second place in my seventh grade lip sync contest for one of the songs on that album. The one that was like, you've already won me over. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. It's a very of all slow. The, of all the options. In spite of me. <laughs> like, what did we do? It's so slow. Don't forget to listen to 20 Questions on Deadline. Thank you again, Alison. Thank you. Hey, Sarah, I love that spring break vlog you posted on Zigazoo. OMG, you watched it? Yeah, it was so cool. I think you're so talented. Social media is only positive with Zigazoo, the world's largest and safest social media network for kids. In Zigazoo, all community members are verified kids like yours, and all content is fully human moderated. Try out Zigazoo this spring break. Download the Zigazoo app today. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex- Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Welcome back to Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom. This is the opening episode of Season 5, and I'm absolutely honored to have today's guest, Jason Strong. Jason, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I appreciate you having me on. I'm honored to be here. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really happy you're here for a number of reasons. I'm sorry you had to go through this. So, Jason, before all this happened and your life was turned really into a living hell, for 15 and a half years. How was your life? You, you grew up in Illinois, right? Uh, no, actually, I spent most of my life in uh, Texas. I was born in Arizona, lived in Texas most of my life. And uh, I moved to Illinois to try to... Well, actually, I moved to Wisconsin first 
with my grandparents to try to get a different start because I was kind of on a, a bad road, doing drugs, drinking, acting up. So eventually I, I moved to Illinois and with some friends and then I got my own place there. But uh, I mean, I never really did change. I, I still kind of lived like a rock star. You know, I was working in a, an adult bookstore, did a lot of drinking and partying and drugs. And But I mean, at the end of the day, I was still a good person. I mean, I wasn't, you know, robbing people. I wasn't killing people. I wasn't, you know, in any gangs or doing anything ridiculous. You weren't hurting anybody uh, other than yourself. Exactly, exactly. But I mean, I was, you know, living in the fast life and I wasn't thinking about it, you know. So it's just one of those things that some people do that when they're young, you know. And I was living like a rock star, but I wasn't a rock star. But that being said, so you're 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 hanging around trying to figure it out. How old were you at this time? Uh, 24. 24. So yeah, so you're 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 getting, you know, I mean it's funny cuz I think a lot of people in their mid 20s start to figure out what it is that they're really doing. I know for me it's true. That's when I sobered up and started, you know, trying to really build my my life uh, up instead of down. Well, before I got locked up. So I got locked up in December of 99. And before that happened, I mean, I I I was trying to think about what do I want to do. You know, I was considering going back to school and pursuing something in the world of art. You know, I don't I didn't really know exactly what, but I mean, I wanted to do something with art. Uh, I've always been creative. So but I never got that opportunity. Uh, it was taken from me by the fact that I got arrested for this crime. And and that's a crazy story. I mean, it was your misfortune. You didn't know it at the time, but you were living in a county that ha- turns out to have the highest number of wrongful convictions in Illinois, which is one of the states that has the highest number of wrongful convictions. But other than Chicago, this area that you lived in was was. A bad spot. It was a hotbed for police misconduct and wrongful convictions as a result. So there you are, knocking around, trying to figure it out, you know, having your party in times, whatever you're doing. And this comes out of the blue. Right. Yeah, it was uh, December 20th. I was hanging out with my girlfriend and her friend. You know, we were smoking a bowl, having a few beers, and I get a knock at the door thinking it's my buddy just coming over to hang out. Open the door, it's a bunch of cops standing there with guns drawn. And they push into my room, throw me down on my bed, handcuff me, and the nightmare began. Did they tell you what they were arresting you for? No, but I had a I had a clue because they had been around earlier that day asking people if they seen anything or knew anything. So, I mean, I had a little bit of a clue, but it still threw me because, I mean, I had nothing to do with this crime. So I didn't understand why this was happening. I was confused. I was scared. And But when you say they were asking, did you see anything? Did you know anything about what? Was it a specific crime that they were asking about? Yeah, they had discovered a Jane Doe's body in the Lake County Forest Preserve. And uh, so on December 9th, this body was found. And apparently she had been badly beaten and tortured and, you know, suffered a really bad death. And uh, blunt force trauma was the cause of death. And that was on December 9th. Around December 14th, there was a prostitute sting in the area where I lived. I lived next door to the bookstore that I worked at, the adult bookstore. So I had thought that, you know, this woman was a prostitute. And I told her, you know, you can't be doing this around here. Uh, you know, I don't want to have to call the cops on you. So, you know, just go back to your room and, and keep it cool. And uh, later on, I came out and she was still doing that. And that's when I first met Jeremy Tweedy, who would later become my co-defendant. So that night I, I walked up to him. And I said, hey, how long has this woman been out here? Do you know? He said, she's been out there a while. She looks like she was crying. So I thought maybe she had a pimp or something that was forcing her to do this. 
So I struck up a conversation with her, asking if there was anything I could do to help, whatever, because I didn't want to have this going on and I didn't want to see her hurt either. And we talked for a little while. Uh, I mean, even to the extent that we asked about her kids and, you know, why didn't she find a better line of work, etc. And uh, I eventually went in to eat my dinner and her and Jeremy Tweedy had this conversation that later turns out he apparently allegedly said something to her about, you know, you shouldn't be around here because there was a woman that was killed here recently and a bunch of people had beat on her and threw her in a van and got rid of her. And they used that as a you know, reason to come and arrest him. And then he said that it was me. Now, why did he say it was me? So the cop that arrested him somehow or another claims that this was an accident, but that his hand got crushed in the car door on the way to the police station. And next thing you know, he's fingering me for the crime. Years later, when he recants, he says that it was because the cops only wanted to talk about me. Since the moment he stepped into the room, they kept saying, what did Jason Strong do with this crime? What do you know about Jason Strong's involvement in this crime? And they just kept mentioning me over and over and over to the point where he got the the gist of it. They wanted me. So he said that I did it. He saw it happen. And then they came and arrested me. They came and arrested my friend Jason Johnson. But wait, what is the what's the thing with the hand in the car door? How does that fit into this? I think I think it's I think they intimidated him by injuring him. I can't prove that. But I mean, I think it's kind of odd that his hand was slammed in a police car door on a way to the police station. And then he next thing you know, he's singing these lies for them. Well, there's there's a second part to this that I, I can't prove this. But this is my opinion on the matter is the officer that brought him in actually had it in for me. So prior to all this happening. This cop had been coming around the bookstore and harassing me for a couple months. And I don't even know why he ever started doing that, but he did. And he wanted me to be a snitch. He wanted me to tell him about drug dealers and different things. I'm like, man, I don't know nothing. I don't don't know nothing about no drug dealers. And uh, he told me if I did not cooperate with him, he would make my life a living hell. A few short weeks later, I'm locked up for a murder I didn't commit. And he was the initiating officer that arrested the guy who would become my co-defendant, who I didn't even know on the night in question. That's a lot of coincidences. Exactly. I mean... But I can't prove that he did anything. You were a victim of some really terrible misdeeds right. by the people that were supposed to protect you and everybody else in the community, and that's quite the opposite of what they did. Right. So it's pretty clear why Tweedy would have implicated you, because he would have implicated his, his grandmother if mm-hmm. he had to, to make them stop doing whatever it was they were doing to him, right? Right. And he implicated himself as well. Right. But but he wasn't involved in the crime either. No. In fact, uh, he turned out to be actually quite a character. He's a, a bit of a pathological liar. Before my trial, I think he had like six or seven different versions of what happened that night, constantly changing and t- to the point where at my trial, he came up with a new version of events that were different from all the earlier ones. So he would always make changes. And, and I mean, he just did this for years. He stuck to his lie for years. But I think it's it all started because of that one cop. I can't prove it. That's just my theory. But uh, part of it is going off of also what he told me years later when he recanted Jeremy Tweedy about how that's all they wanted to talk about was me. And I'm like, well, why would they be so focused on me? Why me of all the people that they could have thought about? Well, I mean, it sounds yeah. like this one officer... Right. You know, had just sort of figured you were going to be a good source of information because you were in sort of a seedy area and right. a seedy business, right? And you, he had it in his head that you must have known stuff, and he felt like you were holding out on him. 
So he decided to exact his revenge. This insane story of yours ultimately ends up with you being held in jail for quite a long time pending trial and ultimately going to trial. What was that process like? Did you have decent representation? Yeah, I I did not have good representation. I uh, I had public defenders. I I actually, I asked my family over and over to get me a lawyer. I knew I needed a real lawyer because these guys just, they weren't going to cut it. They, They didn't listen to me. They had their own view on things, but I didn't know what a lot of my rights were at that time either and how I could make changes in anything. But uh, we went to trial with them basically handing me over to the jury. They went in and said that my coerced false confession was actually true and that I didn't do the crime, but I was there when it happened. That was their defense for me. And I was like, well, that's ridiculous. I didn't do any of this. But that was their strategy, if you will. They basically handed me over. They screwed me for the prosecution. So you're lit- I had no chance. You're literally sitting there watching yourself drown. Right. I so mean- when the time came for me to take the stand, I couldn't take the stand. I would have gone against every single thing they already said. That's unreal. They were looking for the easiest route. Rather than to try to fight my case and prove my innocence, they took the easiest option for themselves. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Hey, Sarah, I loved that spring break vlog you posted on Zigazoo. OMG, you watched it? Yeah, it was edited so well. I think you're so talented. Social media interactions are only positive when you use Zigazoo. Zigazoo is the world's largest and safest social media network for kids. Your kids can upload their content and see what their friends are up to. With Zigazoo, they can create videos, enter to win prizes, and try out the latest dances and trends. There's no commenting, no text messaging, and everything is 100% human-moderated. Plus, all community members are real, verified kids just like yours. There are no bots, trolls, or AI. Because Zigazoo is about one thing and one thing only, and that is fun. Try out Zigazoo this spring break and let your kids share your vacation vlogs and best edits with their friends safely. Download the Zigazoo app today. That's Z-I-G-A-Z-O-O. Hi, I'm Antonia Blythe, and this is 20 Questions on Deadline. Joining me today is Alison Bree. Welcome, Alison. We got second place in my seventh grade lip sync contest for one of the songs on that album. The one that was like, you've already won me over. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. It's a very all slow. The, all the options. In spite of me. Like, what did we do? It's so slow. <laughs> Don't forget to listen to 20 Questions on Deadline. Thank you again, Alison. Thank you. 
Hey guys, it's Steve Cavino from Cavino and Rich here to tell you the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new Toyota truck like a rugged half-ton Tundra. Workhorse by nature, powerhouse by design, the Tundra combines raw capability with premium comfort and advanced tech to fuel your wildest adventures. And with the available iForce Max Hybrid powertrain, you can take electrifying horsepower farther than ever before. Or check out the fully redesigned Tacoma delivering trail-dominating power and captivating style. The new Tacoma was born to make your off-roading dreams come true. And with the new available tech, this legendary truck is getting even better. When you buy a Toyota truck... You buy Toyota dependability, meaning your truck will hold this value long into the future. So visit your local Toyota dealer. Check out the amazing national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. It's a very bizarre set of circumstances when you have your advocate actually working against you. Right. And you're, you're, I mean, I can't imagine you're in this crazy vortex. You've already been through hell. You've been sitting in jail for, you know, what, how long were you in jail for? Uh, so I, the trial, I believe, was in October of 2000. So almost a year by that point. Right. So you're already dizzy from this experience. Yeah. I mean, anybody would be. And now you're in this crazy vortex. Yeah. And you've got these, these dolts, not even underrepresenting you, but actually working against your best interests for whatever their twisted motives were. Did you know, like when the jury went out, did you know you were fucked? I had a good feeling that, yeah, that was going to be the case. I mean, I still had a tiny bit of hope, you know, that maybe they would figure something out. But no, I, I kind of had a feeling I was screwed. I mean, from the sound of it, I mean, even I if I was I don't blame the jury, jury in my case at all. I yeah, really I mean, don't. How, how, unless they had just some weird intuition. Yeah. If I was on my jury, I would have convicted me. That's a strong statement. Yeah. I mean, at, at the end of the day, there was nothing put forth to defend me and to prove my innocence. No. So there you go. So, yeah. You know. So you, so you. it's interesting because a lot of the exonerees that have been on the show had held out hope until the very end. But your circumstances... <laughs> relatively unique i mean even with some of the stories we've heard of incompetent defense how long do they deliberate um it wasn't very long at all just maybe a couple hours right i mean yeah. who knows that, they, they were probably having lunch i mean yeah. who knows what they were doing for two whole hours yeah. with, i mean i don't even saying. know if it was that long that's how it felt in my head as i was sitting in a cell then the moment came right which right. can you describe that horrible horrible moment when you're basically you, you must have thought your life was over yeah i uh that was probably the loneliest day of my life. Um, having to hear those people say that I was guilty of a crime that I did not commit, and not just once, but the judge made each individual one say their verdict, so I had to hear it over and over again, and then hear my family break down behind me and not be able to do anything about it. Um, I can't describe the crushing weight that was. How did you... How did you deal with it? How did you come out of it? How did you get here? I am actually in awe of the, the fortitude that you have. How did you do it? If you can even put it into work. Um, yeah, I think I can. I mean, so after that, after that moment, I mean, I, I wanted to die. Like, I've never wanted to die before. It was, it was terrible. And on, uh, after we left the courtroom, I asked the officer if he could take me to a, a private solitary cell uh, just so I could you know, just break down and decompress. And once I, I put myself back together and I went back to the general population, I just started doing a lot of thinking and I was angry. I was confused. I didn't know what my next move was going to be, but I, 
I decided to adopt this kind of militaristic mentality and I turned everything into a war against the state of Illinois. And uh, I, I studied Sun Tzu and Julius Caesar and tried to, you know, incorporate these, this thinking of how to fight a war. But I was doing it in the courtroom. The courtrooms were my battlefields. So, I mean, I kind of took on that, that mentality. Did you have any help? Did you have an appellate lawyer assigned to you or anything like that? Yeah, we, uh, so after I lost, we hired an attorney, Jed Stone, and uh, he did a post-trial motion and then he helped me through my first appeals, but those didn't pan out. So when we lost him and we couldn't afford him anymore, I became my own attorney and I did it my way. And I threw every single thing I could think about him. I filed my, my post-conviction petition on my own, which was like 70-something pages long. And I threw every single thing I could think of that was wrong with my case at that courtroom. You know, I battled it on my own for a while. I got a, an appellate attorney appointed to me at one point, And all he did was basically drag things out. But for the most part, I, I, I fought myself and, uh, until I got Northwestern to get involved. And that, but that was years and years later. And then talk about that a little bit, Jason. Northwestern? So, Northwestern, yeah. Because, I mean, first of all, one of the best schools in the country. Right. And they do amazing work. Absolutely they do. Yeah, I would not be free if it wasn't for them. So I was in the federal court. I was filing a, a federal habeas corpus all on my own. And there was a procedural issue that came up. Well, let me back up. Before that, I had already been trying to reach out to Innocence Projects for years. I'd been writing them letters and, you know, having my family make phone calls. And I had been in touch with Jane Raley at uh, Northwestern. And we'd, you know, been kind of back and forth and everything, but she couldn't take on the case at the time. But we still communicated. So when I got to federal court, I don't know if Judge Kennelly saw something in my case or what, but... uh he called Thomas Garrity, the director of the clinic at Northwestern, wow. personally and asked him to look at my case. And it was just for a procedural issue. But once Tom looked at everything, he realized there was more to it. And Northwestern decided to take my case on full all the way. That team grew over the years, you know, because they have students. And three of the students graduated, went on to big law firms and brought their law firms in. So I had Northwestern, Winston and Strawn and Cat and Mutch and Rosenman all supporting my fight. Well, so you, I mean, at least in terms of your legal representation, you really went from the bottom to the top. Absolutely. I mean, you went from guys who sold you down the river to like an army. Right. A legal army. Yep. And, and by the way, that happened for a very specific reason, which is that you found something that very few people could find in your situation. I don't know where you got it from. I but, don't either. <laughs> but where I think a normal person would have curled up in a corner and collapsed yeah. or, you know, done harmed themselves like you talked about doing or whatever, you didn't stop. And you maintained faith in the system, even though the system had totally let you down and turned on you, you know, which is remarkable. I, I keep coming back to that. And then as a result, you end up with this powerhouse or sort of a, a, a power trio of, of advocates, right? Mm -hmm. The two law firms plus the Innocence Project at Northwestern, which, right. you know, as I said, their reputation's amazing. So, so then things are turning in your direction, but you've been in now for quite some time. So around the time they took over, I had been in about seven and a half, eight years. It was shortly after we learned about the identity of the victim. 
So yeah, it was, uh, I've been in there for quite a while and it still was another eight years after that before I was free. Did you have any clue who might have done something like this? No, uh, we do now. We do now. But here, so for many, many years, I actually thought Jeremy Tweedy was the guy because he was so quick to make up all these lies about me and to, you know, help himself out that I thought, well, I didn't even know this guy. Well, maybe he's the one that did it. And that's why he's, you know, so adamant about lying against me is he's trying to protect himself somehow. He was my main suspect for many, many years. It wasn't until we identified the victim, which was seven years after I was arrested, that we finally figured out who the victim was. It wasn't until then that we started to develop an understanding of what might have really happened or who the real perpetrators were. There was actually three people that we suspect being involved, which is ironic considering that three people were originally arrested. Right, you, Um, Tweedy, and Jason Johnson. Right. But I was the only one that was ever charged with murder. They were charged with uh, concealment of a homicide. Tweedy's was dropped to obstruction for testifying against me. But we discovered that there was three individuals, a mother-daughter team. They had been, they're grifters. They basically uh, took advantage of elderly people, handicapped people, mentally disabled people, and, and extorted them for their money. And they somehow came into a power thing with the victim in this case, who we later discovered was Mary Kate Sunderland, a mentally disabled woman. And they took over her life. They kept her from her family. They apparently, from what we understand, sold her to this mentally deranged individual who they also extorted. They convinced this guy to have his own arm chopped off by a railroad track train, you know, a train going across the railroad tracks, and sued the state of Illinois. Wow. Um, I mean, let's just go... I mean, that's a lot to it. I it's got a you. lot, right? right? I mean, that's insane. It's it's just one of many twists to this case. I mean, it's it, it really is a crazy case, a crazy story. But uh, so yeah, they they Gonzalo Chamizo is this guy's name. He's really mentally insane. He's in an institution today. They convinced him to to lay on some tracks. From what I understand, what my attorneys told me, to lay on some tracks, and a, a train ran over his arm and cut his arm off. And the money he got from that he gave to them because they sold the victim to him. And then over a certain amount of time, they you know, starved her, beat her, tortured her, and extorted money out of her. So they, they did this for this long period of time. The last thing that the victim's family ever heard from their loved one was that they don't want me to talk to you. It was these people, they were keeping her for this long period of time. And knowing this, learning this helped us unravel the case. Because the, the whole theory of the state when they convicted us was that me, Jason Johnson, and Jeremy Tweedy picked this random girl up off the streets, took her to my room, and we tortured her and killed her in one night and dumped the body. And, you know, they had all these, th- you know, different uh, theories on what evidence was there. Like, they, th- they said the body was burned by molten wax and all this. And years later, after we started to put all the pieces together and found these alternative suspects and we were in the federal courts... The attorney general's office and the new Lake County attorney who came in with the idea that he wants to find the truth in all these cases, they decided to to reach out to my attorneys and say, let's reinvestigate this case. So we did that. And what we discovered, we had some independent forensic pathologists come in, three independent pathologists, and they all came to the same conclusion that this person was actually dead probably four to five days prior to when they found the body. 
not the date before. And I'm glad you brought that up because that's a really interesting part of this case. And it explains why it was so hard to identify her as well, right? Right, absolutely. Um, because she had obviously decomposed to a significant degree by that time. Well, it, it was more than that. I mean, part of the reason she was uh, unidentified was just a lack of police work, I believe. Because they had dental records. They just didn't follow through with things. And once they had what they wanted, they didn't follow through with investigating these things. I mean, how can you not identify the person from a few counties over when there's a missing person report on that person? How do you not make that connection? Yeah, it's not like she was from, you know... Uh, yeah, she wasn't from California or, yeah, you know, or Nebraska or something. She Car- was, Caracas. You right. <laughs> Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Have you heard about the social media platform for kids? It's called Zigazoo. It's a great place where kids like me can come together to make fun videos. Zigazoo is moderated by real, live people who review content before it's posted on the feed. I especially love the dance challenges. So much fun. Oh, and there's no comments or messaging, so you don't get any of that negativity that's all over other social networks. All my friends love it. I love that it's kids-safe COPPA certified. Uh, I don't know what that means. It means it has built-in privacy protections for your online data. Eh, that's great, but I wouldn't be doing Zigazoo if it wasn't fun. She would not be doing it if I didn't think her data was safe. Zigazoo, the world's largest social network. For kids! (laughs) Download the Zigazoo app today. Welcome to the Scene to Scene podcast. I am your host, Valerie Complex. Today, I am chatting with Ji Young Yu. Ji Young stars as co-lead in the six-part limited series, Expats. I think I learn a little bit with every character that I play. I think usually I play a character and it causes enough introspection that I learned something about myself. I honestly can't gush enough about Freaky Tales. I'm so excited to share it with more people. If you like what you hear, be sure to review, like, and subscribe to the Scene to Scene podcast. Hey guys, it's Steve Covino from Covino and Rich here to tell you the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new Toyota truck like a rugged half-ton Tundra. Workhorse by nature, powerhouse by design, the Tundra combines raw capability with premium comfort and advanced tech to fuel your wildest adventures. And with the available iForce Max Hybrid powertrain, you can take electrifying horsepower farther than ever before. Or check out the fully redesigned Tacoma delivering trail-dominating power and captivating style. The new Tacoma was born to make your off-roading dreams come true. And with the new available tech, this legendary truck is getting even better. When you buy a Toyota truck... You buy Toyota Dependability, meaning your truck will hold its value long into the future. 
So visit your local Toyota dealer. Check out the amazing national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. You know, one of the things that helped lead to your exoneration was the fact that new experts were brought in who are actual experts. And I'm glad we're touching on this, Jason, because we know that junk science, bad forensics um, are a a major cause of wrongful Mm -hmm. conviction. And in your case, it was a different kind of junk science, which was that you had an an examiner, a medical examiner or somebody like that, who, who testified saying that the body had been found within... A short period of time, right? Right. She was found on the 9th, December 9th of 99. They theorized that on the 8th is the night that we partied with her and tortured her and killed her. And he goes on to say that we poured molten wax on her and she was burned and and all this different stuff. But years later, when we got these new independent forensic pathologists to look at it, all of that was wrong. All of it. One, she was dead at least four days prior to the night they found her. But uh, it went even beyond that into the fact that her injuries were in different stages of healing, showing that she had been tortured for a long period of time, weeks, if not months. So this wasn't something that happened in one night. And further, the information about molten liquid and wax being poured on her and she was burned was wrong. They said that all that discoloration and all the, the sloughing of the skin and everything that this medical examiner said was evidence of that was actually decomposition. There was no burns. There was none of that. He was wrong. And I learned during my civil suit from my, my attorneys telling me that he actually doesn't even have a medical license from Amer- any American medical schools. He got it from some Dominican Republic a uh, school that was shut down for different reasons of being fraudulent or not up to par or whatever. So he didn't even ha- he didn't even go to medical school here in this country. Well, he went to a non-medical school in a foreign country. Right. Yeah. So he basically was just a, a yutz, like a total yutz. I mean, that's that's the way my attorneys explained it to me. So, yeah. It gets deeper and deeper. I mean, these things are always so troubling to me because – especially in a case like this where you have a a young, innocent woman who had her life in front of her, who is taken out and brutally beaten, maybe beaten to death, dumped in the forest like trash. And, you know, one would think and one would hope that the people in, in positions of power would really want to find the right guy. To make sure this didn't happen, even if it's for selfish reasons, Jason, right? Even if it's just like, because of a small community you lived in, right? Right. Yeah, it wasn't a big town. Right. I always try to rationalize this, but I can't. Because you have all the people that are involved in this, and there's usually more than one, right? It takes more than one to, to sort of, you know, create this narrative and then convict an innocent person like yourself, or in this case, three. The actual killer, who was a sick, depraved individual by any stretch of the imagination, is free, stayed free, right? Once they convicted you, once they even arrested you, they stopped looking for him. And whoever he was, he was free to prey on anyone in the community that he wanted to. And that could have been, you know, one of these people, somebody that was loved by one of these officers or or people in the prosecutor's office or anything else. So even in the situation where we all find it hard to understand how someone could have the lack of, of of soul or, or empathy or whatever it is, or, or just the, 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 
a total breakdown that allows them to feel comfortable locking up someone who they knew was innocent or more than one person in, mm-hmm. in this case. They would want to keep their family and their community safe, but they didn't. Right. They, that, that goes out the window in these cases. They get this tunnel vision like they did in your case, and they just go for it. I think a lot of that, there's a lot there, by the way, that you just said, but uh, I think a lot of that is systemic. There's a systemic problem, especially in places like you know Illinois. You know, Cook County is probably the worst, where this has been going on for so many generations that these cops just follow in the same footsteps of all their predecessors. I mean, you probably follow this back to the days of Al Capone. I mean, you've got governors in Illinois that are in jail. Most of I mean, them. It, I, right. I mean, it's it's a systemic problem that's been going on for a long time. And if new police officers coming into the to the force don't see good examples to follow, then they're going to follow the bad examples that they see. And that's what has gone on for so long that that's all they know how to do. I'm not going to say all of them are bad because no, they're not. Of course they're not. not. But they're, a, a few bad apples can corrupt all of them because nobody wants to be the guy that says, hey, that cop's not doing his job right because then they're Serpico, right? And, and nobody Serpico. wants to be that. So it becomes that uh, this big problem that you can't get away from. And I don't know what the answer is to fix it. If there's anything that stands out, and obviously it was a miserable 15 and a half years, but one thing I'm curious about is, was there a worst moment in all that time in prison? And was there one moment that actually you remember and brings you a smile? Um, well, as far as prison goes, the worst moment would probably be the ride to prison. It was the most terrifying I could ever imagine. I mean, you're an innocent man on a bus going to a place where you know that everybody there is hardened criminals. Well, most people there is hardened criminals. It's a maximum security prison. All I could think about is, am I going to be raped? Am I going to be murdered? Am I going to be forced to kill somebody to survive? What is my life going to become? I didn't know what to expect. I was terrified. But I didn't show it. I, I you know, stood tall, stood my ground, and did what I had to do. And I met a lot of good people and showed myself to be a stand-up guy. And I got by. I survived it. Was there a moment that you can remember besides, obviously, the moment when the guard came to tell you that you were right. free or even when your lawyer told you that you were going to be getting out in a few days? Was there any other moment that stands out that you had a moment of humanity or grace or, you know, something that kind that somebody did or, you know, anything like that? Um, you know, I mean, probably a lot of small things, but I can't think of nothing like really, really major other than, you know, every time my family would come to see me. That was my my big moments, you know. I mean, for the most part, it was just uh, day-to-day stuff was all the same. You know, as the monotony of it kind of gets to you. So it's it's all the same stuff over and over. I found joy in the fact that I had some really good friends. You know, I, I met some really great people. I mean, one of which is like a brother to me. I got to also say, man, a lot of I owe a lot of credit to my mom and my grandmother and my family. You know, they, they were a, a source of strength for me as well. All these years go by. You spent seven and a half years fighting a lonely battle by yourself. Mm-hmm. And then you got another seven and a half, eight years with the cavalry, right? <laughs> right. And then ultimately, we know what happened because you're sitting here. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and how did that come down? What was the moment when you first knew, like you knew you were fucked when you were in the courtroom? Right. What was the moment when you knew that you were unfucked? Oh, wow. That's... Uh... I mean, there's a couple different areas where I started to feel hope, but I'd say the moment when I, I knew things were probably going to work out was 
about a few days before I was released, my attorney called me and said that they were expecting to have a meeting with uh, you know the state's attorney and the attorney general in Canelli's office. That was the judge. And that they expected a release to be signed, that they were going to vacate my conviction. And it actually came sooner than they expected. I was surprised. I was kind of already packing and planning, hoping that this was going to play out the way they thought. And I was taking it easy, you know, taking a break and watching a movie. And the officer comes by the cell and says, Strong, what are you doing? Pack your shit, man. You're getting out of here. I'm like, what? What the fuck are you talking about? And I wasn't expecting it for, you know, another day or two. And it just threw me, man. I jumped down. I'm like packing all my shit as fast as I can. You know, all my guys are happy for me. People are, you know, clapping, wishing me well. People that weren't in their cells were coming up, giving me hugs. It was just, it was a very uh, just crazy but, you know, wonderful feeling and day, you know. Of course, I had to wait for my mom to drive up and pick me up, and my attorneys were there. And But uh, when I walked out, I was so overwhelmed that I just I broke down into tears. I, I Just all that, uh, all those years of... of you know, staying stoic and fighting and it just, I was able to let it go. That's an amazing picture that you're painting right there. And it's, it's actually really heartwarming to think about all the other guys, you know, who are still facing their own demons and their own sentences. But the fact that they were able to take joy in your release. um, Well, I made a lot of, you know, good friends in there. I mean, guilt or innocence didn't matter as far as other people in there. You judge people by who they were, and there's there's a lot of stand-up guys in there. They're not all scum like some people would have people believe. And I mean, I, I met a lot of good people in there. You know, there are some bad people. Don't get me wrong, but I mean, I made some good friends. I still go back to the prison now to visit a couple guys. That's so. amazing. So you, you're watching the movie. You get this. You're sort of touched by an angel, right? Yeah. Although it's in the form of a prison guard in this yeah. case. He was actually a cool prison guard though. oh good well yeah. that, that adds a little something to it too and then a few hours later whatever it is your mom arrives mm-hmm. she must have been breaking down too and yeah. and what what time of year was it when you got out and what time of day was it was it hot was it cold and where'd you go and what'd you do what was the first okay. thing you did so it was uh may 28th 2015 and uh it was a nice nice day out so there was three of my attorneys there at my mom and we went to this nearby diner and I had a bacon mushroom cheeseburger, which was the best bacon mushroom cheeseburger I've ever had. And uh, we sat around and talked and just enjoyed the moment and, you know, kind of let everything else just melt away. Were there tears um, and, you know... Was there- at that point, no, it was just jubilation, man. Just telling stories and talking and, and being happy. The, the tears, uh, most of those were shed, you know, at, in the parking lot before we uh, went to the diner. So, yeah, it was just an all happy moment, you know, with all of us sitting there and eating a meal together and talking about future dreams and hopes and, you know. So I'm thinking about this first meal, so to speak, right? People think about the Last Supper. I'm thinking about the first meal and how good does food taste after 15 and a half years of institutional, you know, slop, so to speak. I think there's another element to this particular story of the first meal. Yeah, so... uh I have this story, uh, which uh, is kind of, it's a growing story, if you will. When I went to uh, court, in federal court, I had a writ to Stateville. I originally spent all my time in Menard, and we didn't have oranges. I used to love oranges growing up as a kid. And when I got to Stateville, they had oranges. 
and I got an orange and I hadn't seen or had an orange in like eight years, eight and a half years at this point. And so I just looked at that orange and smelled it and rolled it around in my hand. I savored every moment of that orange. And most people are like, oh, you must really love oranges. But it's it's not so much that. It's it's the little things that everyday people take for granted that you miss so much when it's deprived of you. And so I ate that orange, and that was the best orange I ever ate. And when I got out, the day I got out, and we went to that little diner and had this bacon mushroom cheeseburger, I was telling my attorneys about this story. And the waitress overheard, and she came over to me after I was done and gave me an orange. Wow. And and so, you know, it kind of grew. So And then later, uh, last year in San Diego at the Innocence Network Conference, I was telling this same story. And after I was done, one of the girls that was there in this little group walked over and gave me an orange. So this is like this evolving story about an orange and its meaning in my life and how, you know, when I was sitting in a prison cell, it had all this weight of, you know, something so small but so powerful and meaningful. So you drove back to Tennessee. What date was that? Uh, May 28, 2015. So that's... uh that's pretty recent. And since then, how's life? Uh, it's good, you know. I mean, it, it took me a little while to adapt to things and want to get back out around people. I was very uh, uncomfortable in public. Uh, like I, if I went to a Walmart, just having people, you know, aimlessly wandering around me kind of put me on ease, you know. So I, I still had that kind of, you know, what are you doing behind me kind of feel, you know, like you have in prison. And uh, so, yeah, I, I was very weird about being out in public for a while. And I, I almost came dangerously close to creating my own prison at home. so where I didn't want to leave. But I forced myself out of my comfort zone. And then I, I got out there and just started facing things and doing things. And I, I still like to sit where I can see everybody. But, uh, you know, I, I get around in public with no problem. I go to concerts now and, you know, I'm trying to become an aspiring filmmaker and I do a TV show. So I'm getting around and bumping elbows with people and going to conferences and doing different things. Jason, we have a tradition here on wrongful conviction, which is that at the end of the show, I like to turn the mic over to you, the star of the show, and just share with us anything at all that you want to share. Okay. um, Well, I did want to add that I'm also working on a documentary that I'm filming about wrongful convictions and the purpose of this film is that I don't want to preach to the choir anymore I I want to reach out to more and more people and show people that this is a bigger problem than one or two people you might see in a documentary Uh, I think too many people are unaware of how big of a problem this is they see a, a story on Kirk Bloodsworth or someone else and they'll say oh poor that person poor this person and I want them to understand that there are thousands of people that this is probably happening to right now that we don't even know about. America has 2.2 million people in prison. If just 1% is wrong, that's 22,000 people. That's a lot of people's lives destroyed, potentially, you know? And we need to be aware of this. Martin Luther King said, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We need to be aware of our problems and hold people accountable when they break the laws that they're supposed to uphold. Cops and prosecutors should not be immune. Don't forget to give us a fantastic review wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps. 
And I'm a proud donor to the Innocence Project, and I really hope you'll join me in supporting this very important cause and helping to prevent future wrongful convictions. Go to innocenceproject.org to learn how to donate and get involved. I'd like to thank our production team, Connor Hall and Kevin Wardis. The music in the show is by three-time Oscar-nominated composer Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Wrongful Conviction and on Facebook at Wrongful Conviction Podcast. Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom is a production of Lava for Good Podcast in association with Signal Company Number One. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste, the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Hey, Sarah, I love that spring break vlog you posted on Zigazoo. OMG, you watched it? Yeah, it was so cool. I think you're so talented. Social media is only positive with Zigazoo, the world's largest and safest social media network for kids. In Zigazoo, all community members are verified kids like yours, and all content is fully human moderated. Try out Zigazoo this spring break. Download the Zigazoo app today. Hey, this is John Ridley. And this is Matt Carey, documentary editor at Deadline. And welcome to Talk Talk. John, we've got a hard-hitting episode today. A lot of controversy. Well, maybe we should put the word controversy in quotes in the documentary field about the nominees for Best Documentary Feature. We're going to get into that with some amazing panelists. You get a shot. But the individuals behind every one of those images, they're complicated and they are human. This has been Doc Talk. Thank you. Great Thank conversation. You There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex- Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. At-